Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comic Podcast, episode 81. I'm Christina, and I'm joined by the other nerds, Ryan. Hello. Rory. Yo. And Carissa. Hey, yeah. Together we take on this week's comic. Each week we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week's books, then come on back. Each week, one of us picks our favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. This week, the pick of the week goes to Animosity, The Rise, number two. Our companion song is Endgame by Rise Against because it is very apocalyptic and horrifying. So let's take a listen. My pick of the week, Animosity of the Rise, number two, Aftershock Comics, red letter written by Marguerite Bennett, art by Wando. I forgot how long ago the first one came out. A long ass time ago. I almost thought I forgot it, and then I went and looked at it again, and I was like, oh shit, wasn't that the one where the dolphins were, like, humping people? Yes. Mm-hmm. So fucking funny. Dolphins are bastards. They are <laughs> bastards, and they are bastards in this one, too. So, we met Wintermute last time. She has become the leader of this crazy San Francisco that still exists. This was kind of fucked up. It sounds like they might actually eat dead people. Yes. And other dead animals. Yeah. They're fucking running out of food. I don't think they feed the people to the people. I think they feed the people to, like, the wolves or whatever, you know? I think so, because it's just meat. They do talk about desperate times, but it doesn't seem to have gotten that desperate yet. There's still some food. There's some frozen food they're still trying to eat off of. They're having issues because the dolphins are dicks and they're blocking the harbor. And then also the trucks are being blocked. And won't let them even get fish out of the water either. Are the fish sentient? I don't remember. They said the fish haven't contacted them yet, so. Okay. I don't know. But then again, how is a fish going to fucking contact you? The dolphin can at least surface and, you know, do its little flipper thing. And I don't know. You haven't seen my fish yet. <laughs> <laughs> the koi pond? Oh, yes. They are very active, and they jump out of the water. Nice. I feel that some fish may be able to be sentient. When it comes down to it, if this actually happens, I may be dead. Uh, <laughs> it will be the fish. Wintermute is controlling the city. The very most important person, and this is what this whole story is about, is about Adam, who is a vet, almost a golden child, because he can fix them, he can help them, he's smart, and he's also very kind. He seems to be really hard for him to see what's happening. There's a really great scene where he hears there's a pregnant mare who is being given very very little food and he can't take it he gives her whatever he has left in like a giant bowl of food because he can't see that happen he's kind and the animals get that about him the thing that i loved the most about this one was the goddamn bat the bat who was an asshole in the first one redeems i guess herself her. i can't remember what the name of it. it was like kiki kari kick a click a kid or something like that i like those just bunch of squeaks and clicks basically yeah the bat is actually awesome. The bat sees that Adam is a good person, fucking uses her little bat fingers to unplug the camera because everything is being recorded for all humans. They're watching everything. She shuts off the camera and says, I think I can trust you. You better make sure that I can trust you and gives him this note and says, I got to turn the camera back on. He has to read it later in his own privacy, which is not very private and goes and reads this letter and it says, hey, there's a group out here of animals and humans who see that this is not the way we should be living. We want to get you to safety. We have a plan. And it's an interesting plan. If your watch is going to fake injury, which I was like, how is that going to work? Because he's the vet. Wouldn't he be the one 
to take care of the injury. So I feel like there's a loophole in this plot. I think that's going to take him into the surgery room where they can knock out the camera. I don't know, because it says that there's going to be time where you're going to have like 24 hours where this person, their watcher is going to be gone. So I feel there's a loophole in this. It may work itself out. I thoroughly enjoyed the story. I'm terrified this will actually happen at some point. This takes place in San Francisco, so we're not far from it. I love the animals. I like the characters. I enjoy the story. I want to see where it goes now because now Adam has a way out. Maybe. What did you guys think about it? I definitely mean being partial to wolves and husky and the Maui meets in general. I still really like that character. And, you know, dolphins being jerks. Dolphins are dicks. <laughs> Dolphins are dicks. I like the bat. It's really interesting. It's dark. It's apocalyptic. I just really have always enjoyed Animosity's take in general, like its storyline. And I think it's just generally keeping with its theme. I like this one. I think that it's dark and menacing. I like that they're all kind of trapped in this impossible situation. And you're not really sure if Wintermute is a villain or someone who's actually saving everyone. I like that that's not clear. You get the sense that there's this heavily implied threat of things may be bad now, but if you don't do what I'm going to say, things are going to get a hell of a lot worse. She even says, I'm not the villain. I'm trying to do the best I can. Like that was a really interesting phrase because she doesn't think she's a villain, but to many, I'm sure she is. I mean, if you look at all the great leaders in world history, they're all fucking monsters. Yeah. <laughs> Dead serious. There's not a world leader who has shaped history that is not a mass murdering, killing psychopath. That trait of leadership, of being able to force people to enact your will, it requires some ruthless shit. So I don't know if Wintermute is actually a villain, but I definitely get a sense of menace from her. I liked it. There was a couple books that were okay. This was probably the best of all of them because there were some shit stirs in here. So I'm going to give this all at a four and a quarter <laughs> noises because <laughs> I can't say it either. <laughs> that was a bad tape. Kikiriki is her name. I'm gonna give it three and a half. There are no personal property anymore. I will give it four. Do not give them incentive to eat you. Roy's up next. Alrighty, we got Hulk number eight, Marvel Comics, written by Mariko Tamiki, pencils and inks by George Duarte, colors by Matt Miller. In this one, we find out that formerly known as She-Hulk is now known as Hulk Jennifer. Her Hulk persona has changed, and so she's no longer the big green articulate hot She-Hulk. She is now a big gray a menacing, destructive Hulk. <laughs> and so she's been avoiding her, changing into her Hulk form. Her Hulkification? <laughs> since she almost got killed during the Civil War. We start off with there's like this guy who's her favorite cook on TV who makes cakes and his cameraman who looks like a total sleazebag porn star 90s douche tard. Absolute douche. Douche. I think a few issues ago or like one of the first ones she watches baking shows on YouTube to, to calm her down. <laughs> so she doesn't hulkify. Does she watch the Great British Baking Show? She should. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Never trust anybody with the landing strip strip on the face or uh, tribal tattoos <laughs> <laughs> with a yin yang affliction shirt if they could enter a guy fieri lookalike contest <laughs> do not trust them <laughs> Why is it that everybody who wears affliction shirts aren't fighters? Anyways, <laughs> digressing. The douchey camera guy slipped this mutating drug into the host's cake that he made. And so he took a bite of it and it turned him into this weird, it's like swamp thing. It looked like swamp thing. Hulk looking thing. Yeah, is basically what it is, which left a big old slimy gook everywhere. and Boiled vines. <laughs> kind of thing. Jennifer always takes it as these are my people. So she's got to go invest 
investigate it. And so she gets like a sample of this shit to try and figure out what's going on. And in the meantime, the <laughs> cake baker is out running a rampage trying to get a hold of the guy who done this whole thing to him. Long story short is the cake guy gets a hold of douche and then Jennifer goes hunting down trying to find him and where he's gone. And there's a really cool scene in the end where she jumps off the top of a building and then like hooks out on her fall down. That was probably one of the, I think, better scenes in the issue where she's falling and she's like, hmm, not getting angry yet. <laughs> yeah. Know? <laughs> I think that's a good indication that she's blocked off her anger so much that she needs to be facing death to be able to Hulk out. Yeah, I like this issue a lot. There was a lot of detective work that was going on in it, but overall, it was kind of lacking something. I'm not really sure what. I don't know who this character is. She's not very compelling, but she sure as hell is not the Jennifer that I like and love. Yeah, yeah. that's what that's I was... a good explanation. Yeah. It was very lackluster. The story was... Uh, so. They've all been kind of just passable. In a sense, maybe that's intentional, considering that she was put into a coma, and now her Hulk persona has changed, and her persona persona has changed along that's with it. That's not a bad idea, necessarily. They just don't do it well. It's not yeah. fucking interesting. Yes. <laughs> Every once in a while, there's little bits that I like, so I don't necessarily hate it, but I don't necessarily love it, but the fall scene, and there's definitely little insights that I find interesting that I definitely think are notable but there's nothing that's going to blow you out of the water. There's nothing really stand out about them. It's like a pass-fail. Like, it passes, but not by an incredible margin. Right. The art's not bad. It reminds me a little bit of the Luna Brothers, in a way. Oh, there's a couple things that bothered me about the art. Maybe it's just because there was a douche pro in it. Maybe that's why. I don't know. <laughs> oh, those pustules were pretty good. The transformation was good, too. Yeah. Well, that is by far the best of the panels in it. And was it her assistant? He looks too much like Cho. It's confusing. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I thought at first, too. Ready to read it up? Let's read it up. Decent enough story. Not really digging on the new interpretation of Jennifer. I'm going to give it three and a half douchebag landing strips. <laughs> I think it's a mid-range. It's the middle of the road for me. I'm going to give it two and a half. Jill Manicure saved my life. <laughs> it's just okay. I will also give it a two and a half matcha green tea cake with a cream cheese frosting because that's what I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I will give it two and a half monster juice. All right, so I'm taking us over to the DC Universe for Wonder Woman number 26 from DC Comics, Heart of the Amazon, written by Shea Fontana, pencils and inks by Mirka Andolfo, colors by Rumelo Fajardo Jr. So this is a new creative team on Wonder Woman, so I wanted to go back and check it out. The last run was pretty good, but it was really confusing the way that they split up the two runs. So I was hoping to get maybe some clarity in Wonder Woman here. And I actually liked this one a lot. It's basically the story of Wonder Woman trying to make peace from war, which means she has to spend all of her time in these like refugee camps and war zones. And they have a lot to do with um, childhood. You see images of Wonder Woman as a child playing with her dolls and then all the Amazons commenting on how her mother is keeping her from weapons and that's what she should be playing with. And no real warrior plays with dolls. So you see here, there's actually this kind of touching scene where she takes her little doll and locks it away in a box and throws the key away because she's an Amazon and a warrior. She just threw all of her emotions in a box. Well, you have to put away childish <laughs> things, right? I mean, that's what 
Yeah. That's exactly what I thought of when she did it. Paralleling that doll that she has, there's a bombing scene early in the book, and you see there's actually an image of her boot standing next to this little burning doll that a child had that's pretty interesting. So she's working with the U.S. military and with Steve Trevor and all of that, and they're concerned about her because she's pushing herself way beyond the limits of human endurance, and she's seen things that humans cannot see over and over again without you know decompressing and talking to someone. But she is physically stronger and claims to be mentally stronger than humans are and that she can handle this. The final scene, and this part actually I thought was pretty gripping. She's at this wedding of her friend that they've been trying to convince her to relax and go out and just decompress a little bit. So she's going to this wedding and there's this little girl there who's playing hide and seek and Diana sees her and starts talking to her and the girl's looking for her shoe so Diana helps her find her shoe and then she has this scene where she's talking about how the woman she was playing hide and seek with, she can't find her anymore and the girl's probably I would say five or younger she's very young and she's talking about how she knows all of her numbers and she's kind of sitting under this table and she's like that number is three and then she says no wait it's two and then Wonder Woman lifts up the tablecloth thing and you see there's a bomb strapped under the table that has a two and then a one on as it's counting down and that's kind of where it ends I found that to be a really effective little cliffhanger I think they built up that girl being a sympathetic character that would be the perfect cliffhanger for a TV show or movie or something like that. I think they did really well with it. What'd you guys think of it? I actually really like this one. I thought this was a good jumping on point if you hadn't also read Wonder Woman because I am an off and on reader as well. And I thought this was a good start. I think so too. I didn't know any of these people beforehand, any of the creative team. Yeah. But they did a pretty good job, I think. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. The last scene was heartbreaking because you're like, oh shit. I totally agree. This is bad fucking ass. I thought good depiction of Wonder Woman and just a great non-combat storytelling. They brought in some interesting things like the idea that maybe she might have to deal with PTSD and stuff like that. Just overall good shit. I will give Wonder Woman four. I cannot save them all. I am gonna give this um, four. I'm the doctor here, Diana. I'm gonna give it uh, four lockboxes. So I think it sounds like everybody enjoyed it. So yeah. If you had read Wonder Woman before and you thought it was just really fucking confusing and stuff, check out this new run. Or if you've never read it and you saw the movies, I think this is a really good entry point. It's not dependent on anything that's happened before. Why don't you take us off into space for some papers? I'm covering Rocket number three, Marvel Comics, The Blue River Score, part three, Breakout, written by Al Ewing, pencils and inks by Adam Goram, and colors by Michael Garland. Rocket, as we know, was found guilty and sentenced for the crime he really didn't commit because he was screwed over by Otter the Otter. Damn that Otter. Sneaky Otters. He gets sent to a prison and they're explaining in that sector, it's like the biggest, baddest one in the sector, nearly impossible to escape because it only has one exit into a vacuum. They go into detail about why it's like impenetrable and inescapable and how the guards have to spacewalk from this orbiting station around it. We start off with a typical drill sergeant or warden like, I'm the badass one here and anyone who sasses or talks back gets hurt what we have here is a space failure to communicate (laughs) they show you how that goes down he's given a cellmate i actually like this character concept it's a sentient gas bean that they shoved like a suit that's sealed (laughs) so he can't float around rocket's like it's a sex (laughs) thing huh nailed it (laughs) (laughs) it was great and dude they stuffed him into a bondage suit it's the gimp that was the first thing i thought And then later on, he comes back and goes, I was right, it is a sex thing. (laughs) 
And then they explain their version of the hole for bad inmates is this room that drives you crazy. It's like all white, seamless, no gravity. And then that the guards televise it and take bets on who's going to snap first and how long they'll last. Rocket gets a visitor. First, he thinks it's, like it's the first good sign that either Gamora's coming for him or Peter or he said even Carol. Of course, it wasn't. It was the female leader from the TechNet team. And I like how he's like, normally I go for water mammals, but I bet you I could basically have a good time with her. But no, it wasn't even a conjugal visit. It was them saying like they found a loophole in their contract for the job that if he escapes and they collect him, that they'll get their pay and they can keep doing this scam over over and over. It was their plan to break him out and pretend to capture him even though they already have him and then return him and do that over and over again to keep making money. That's fucking genius. <laughs> Which it is. But in the meantime, what that would do to Rocket would be up his penalties and you'll give him a life sentence or executed or whatever. So he's like, oh, hell no. I got to act fast and I got to act now. And he comes up with a plan because he was engraving some sort of computer chips that instead of like license plates, that's what they were doing. He attacks Gas Boy. He is thrown into that white room that I mentioned. Once it starts going down his plan, you're like, oh, yeah, you can already figure out what he's going to do next and with what bits because they've already explained what parts he has available to him so I think that was a really easy to decipher the long and short of it when the gas guy gets out and does his sex thing the way that they had hurt him because everyone was tailored to that particular type of alien what would hurt them because a shock might not hurt something else so the gas one they injected with oxygen and it was airtight as we are gas tight as they were established so rocket escapes that vacuum i mentioned earlier by getting into that gas guy's suit and using the oxygen that normally would have hurt him to breathe if you want to find out all the little gadgets and tricks he did go and read it he escapes ends up back at another bar and it says i'm back where i started and then he has someone talk to him and and that person's oh. breaking the fourth wall. And before they reveal it, it's the yellow bubbles. That should have sold it. <laughs> <laughs> they say, turn the next page for the big reveal. Deadpool's randomly in outer space and wants to hang out with Rocket. <laughs> so, what do you guys think? I love Rocket space capers and breaking out of prison. I'm all for them telling these stories over and over and over again. I really like them. I like how you see him piece everything he's seen before that seemed random or kind of irrelevant into his master plan. I thought this was very good. His explaining of everything. Did you guys ever watch the Sherlock Holmes movies? Yes. Yes. It's like that. I'm going to explain to you exactly what's going to happen. It also reminds me of The Usual Suspects. Yeah. Yeah, that too. It was great. He's made for heists and capers and prison breaks and shit like that. So this is a perfect retelling of a rocket story the way it's supposed to go. If they keep on doing this, I'll keep on buying. And how freaking awesome is the preview image for the next issue where it's rocket and Deadpool Prohibition gangsters? (laughs) So awesome. Uh... (laughs) Yes. Oh man, those two together could things cannot go space well. Capers. <laughs> I love space capers and I love rocket, so I'm giving give it five one one zero zero one 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 zero one zero 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 zero. When the robot gets shocked and starts malfunctioning. Yeah. I will give it four I can't stand the confusion in my mind when he's pretending to be crazy. <laughs> 
I'm going to give it four welcome to the colon. Yeah. That looks like a space boob. <laughs> I'm going to give it four gimp suits. All right. This one's been about, what, five years in the making? Yes. Spider-Man 2. Number one. That's confusing. Written by Brian Michael Bendis. Penciled in the inks by Sarah Pichelli. Colors by Justin Ponzer. This is the meeting again of the Spider-Mens. The first opening scene is them tied up and in an exploding building. A plane is getting away and they're figuring out how to get out of this. And the interaction was really funny because he's like, I can get us out of this. Spider-Man OG says, do you have any sort of extra power that I don't freaking know about? And he's like, well, you know, I do have this thing called the Mega Venom Blast. Spider-Man OG is like, what the hell? What do you mean? What do you have? This stupid freaking Venom Blast. Like, what the hell? That I thought was pretty funny. He's like, why do you have this? Why do I have this? And he fries up whatever they're bound in. They escape and get out and they're chasing after the plane. They don't get the plane. And then the original Spider-Man is like, you have no business being Spider-Man. None of this should have happened. And I didn't know the whole story about the original Spider-Man, I guess. Went to the Ultimate Universe and he meets Miles Morales and does whatever a spider can with him. And they have all kinds of adventures and stuff. And then the kind of the cliffhanger for that series is he gets back to Earth and he's like, well, I wonder who Miles Morales is in the 616. So he starts Googling him, and it's kind of this cliffhanger where he's like, oh my god, and then it like fades to black. So now we're getting the mm-hmm. story picking up five years later. But what's interesting now is Miles from the Ultimate Universe is also in this universe now. This just picks up with regular Miles Morales series. It's him and Genki, and they're in school, and he's a kid, and then the regular Spider-Man is... That thing crashed down in the school, I, was like, I read it this right after Red Rocket, I'm like... Why is the colon falling to into the schoolyard? Hey, it still could be the colon. What I thought was really interesting, though, was how we were talking earlier about the movie Spider-Man. Your extra spoilers. The character MJ looks like the girl in here. Right. Miles Morales sees hot chick across school. Yankee's like, oh, I know her. Calls her over. They're talking. And all of a sudden, this big giant thing that does kind of almost look like the colon because it even has the boob thing in it. That's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> crashes right in the schoolyard and miles of course puts on a spider suit and then sees off in the distance spider-man coming they have their funny little interaction and they're i guess reminiscing about what had happened before which you were explaining the rift where the 616 and whatever i don't the numbers whatever whatever there was something happened before and it was kind of a bad experience and then the thing it opens and out pops another villain the taskmaster in his skeletor cosplay <laughs> yes because i want to be skeletor cosplay <laughs> but then we get this weird flash forward scene that's the other miles morales yeah who weirdly looks like jigsaw <laughs> that's not a flash forward that's just a different location because he looks a lot older. Might be the scars. This is the first time we've seen the Miles Morales of this universe. That's very confusing. But I guess that was a surprise, but I feel like it was kind of lost on me because I spent more time trying to figure it out. Well, I think that's kind of one thing the series suffers from is the series that this is supposed to be like the exciting conclusion of Cliffhanger was fucking five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and probably a lot of people may not have read it, even though it is one of the better... If you like Spider-Man, that's one of the... You should read this book. And I did not read this book. There's a little letter to the editor saying that it was back in September 2012 that the original series stopped. I do have to say that I will always love Sarah's work. Sarah Pacelli? Yeah, I like her artwork. Yeah, she does a damn good job. She does the regular Miles Morales series. Yes. I didn't think it was that bad. Still very confusing for someone who hasn't read the initial part of this. I didn't think it was bad either. I just think it's very much a case of it's trying to ask a question that most people will not know has been asked. 
But all on its own is just Spider-Man hanging out together and punching armadillos in the face. It's pretty interesting. There was some witty banter between the two of them. That was enjoyable. It'd be really hard to get those two characters together being written by Brian Michael Bendis and make it boring. Some Spider-Man doing some spider shit. Spider-Man is supposed to be witty. A little confused. I couldn't tell which Spider-Person was which Spider-Person and how they got there. But I like them together. I really enjoyed the Miles Morales run. And it's because I like uh, Gonke and him. Curious to see what happens. I like how they play off of each other because I think it really drives home how while they're similar in their kind of banter and the way they carry themselves they are two different kind of characters two different kind of spider-man <laughs> spider peoples i like that because you can really see the difference in the dynamic when that happens and when it's done well and obviously brian michael bendis is one of the better creators so you get what you expect mm-hmm. i will give it three and a half mega venom blast that was pretty funny i enjoyed that yes i agree i gave it three and three quarter pink hat and I'm bringing back the biggest idiot of them all. <laughs> uh, we got Gru, Play of the Gods, Dark Horse Comics by Sergio Aragones. All the artwork's by Sergio Aragones. The writing is by Mark Evanier. I know this because I've been reading him for about 30 years. <laughs> In very typical Gru fashion, Gru goes randomly wandering into this town. It's raining out. Him and Roberto are getting soaked, and they almost end up killing some animals. They're, like, hiding underneath a tree in the rain, but then there's, like, these tigerish looking things that show up. So they run into this town. As they walk in, everybody's talking shit about Gru, as usual. And then once they see him, they all scoot out. What happens is that there's these priests of this town, and they're all freaked out because since Gru's been running around scaring people away, all these refugees are coming into this area and they're bringing their beliefs with them and the priests are freaking out about that because it diminishes their power so they've convinced the queen to start capturing these people and torturing them we need a good old-fashioned inquisition (laughs) there's actually a really cool conversation amongst the gods because they're all like sitting there arguing about hey your followers are killing off everybody who believes in anything else he's like i didn't tell him to do that (laughs) they're like but you didn't tell him not to either i found that a pretty amusing conversation that they had. I thought that was a really interesting conversation. What happens is that eventually somebody starts some shit with Gru, not knowing who he is, and of course that provokes a fight for him. And eventually the priests are like, oh shit, we need to do something about this. So (laughs) one of them comes and tries to talk him into going away. So he's like, you know, the the best cheese dip in the world is nearby. And so he has the other priests paint a bunch of signs that say cheese dip with arrows on them, and they send them in a circle. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's pretty funny. And then eventually he sees all these people walking by and he assumes that they're doing the same thing and he's like hey where are you guys going and they're like oh we're headed to the queen's dungeons he's like oh that's where the greatest cheese dip is huh when he gets there he discovers that it's this big torture chamber there's a pirate that comes in captain ahax and she he i've never really been able to tell is a famous character from back in the day it's kind of like a recurring character in the Gru scenes when she shows up she's discovered this new land and so they've got these mercenaries also that are there that are going to like take over this place so that's like they're basically going to be recruiting people from the prisoners and so they snatch up Gru along with the other people to man this pirate ship and go to this brave new world and get gold and stuff so that's kind of where it ends with this one been a while since I've read Gru and they're generally pretty damn funny I don't think this one had as many of the funny scenes it definitely did have Sergio's stereotypical giant he always does like this spread some issues he'll do like multiples but he'll do these like big spreads where there's like all kinds of stuff going on characters just everywhere 
everywhere filling the whole page. And he had a couple of those in this one. But overall, it wasn't as funny as your typical Gru story was. So this one was kind of a miss. What did you guys think? I enjoyed this one. I thought it was funny enough. I didn't think it was an amazing Gru issue. I think it's pretty standard if you've read Gru you know exactly what you're going to get and this doesn't really disappoint for me on that or rise above that it's just middle of the road Gru which is pretty decent I thought the stuff with the gods was interesting I have not read Gru before <laughs> um, not my thing it reminds me of Hagar the Horrible if everyone remembers the strip comic well that's what I thought I was reading for the longest time I'm like this is just a bunch <laughs> of Sunday funny pages I'm like what's really long it should remind you of like Mad Magazine really yeah yeah, the art does. Yes, that definitely does. I mean, it was just okay. Not my thing. I mean, I love cheese dip, so I feel you, dude. That was pretty funny. That made me laugh. Sending him in a circle? <laughs> yes, the never-ending desire for cheese dip. I think as someone who likes comics, you owe it to yourself to at least have read a couple of Sergio's books. The art is classic. I think this is as good of a jumping-on point as any Guru comic, especially if you like old Mad Magazine uh, type stuff, you'll like this. Having been reading Gru for so long, I think it's kind of like a middle-of-the-road Gru story. It's give yourself a chance to go through some Gru comic books, because he's got some really amazing, hilarious, awesome storylines about this dumb barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> You want to rate it there, Rory? Yeah, we may as well rate it up. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it three and a half phrase. I will give it three. I am in no way responsible. <laughs> it's just not for me, so I'm just gonna be nice. I will give it two and a half uh, cheese dip. I like Mad Magazine. I don't mind this type of storytelling and this type. It just was a little long for me. So I'm gonna give it two and three quarters. Everyone at the tavern talking smack. Speaking of people at a tavern talking shit to each other, we've got Jean Grey number four. <laughs> <laughs> from Marvel Comics, written by Dennis Hopeless, pencils and inks by Harvey Tolbad, colors by J. David Ramos, and Dono Sanchez Omara. What can I say about this one? So this is Jean Grey wants to become a warrior after she talked to Namor. He convinced her that she needs to become a warrior to be able to fight the Phoenix. So, of course, the greatest warrior she knows of is Thor. And she's heard that Thor is chilling in Jotunheim at the top of this iceberg. So she goes climbing up the iceberg, runs into some, she calls them Lord of the Rings extras rejects. This orc army, and at the top <laughs> of the world... There's this bar that reminds me a lot of the bar from mm -hmm. Indiana Jones. She gets there, and Thor is there, and Thor is kind of drunk off his ass and telling <laughs> old grandpa stories about his previous exploits. I liked how you put it as grandpa stories. <laughs> she tells him the same thing. The orcs um, are hunting down Thor, and he's gone to this bar up the top of here to minimize all the casualties, and they start fighting, and there's an interesting part where Jean is saying that she's not a warrior and she doesn't have a big damn magic hammer, and then this psychic magic hammer appears in her hand, her version of Mjolnir, and she starts fighting with that, but then she can't recreate it later. This was probably one of my least favorite issues of Jean Grey. I found Thor to be extremely uninteresting. I found the stories confusing. I really was not a fan of this one and i normally like Jean gray a lot so he was drunk it's true but i just found this he was drunk, very disappointing so. to me the art was fine for me this is probably my favorite one of the gene gray series so far not because the story was really all that interesting just i actually had some laugh moments with drunken thor kicking some ass and stuff like that i enjoyed the artwork quite a bit I still really like some of the banter. I mean, I can understand what you say, how it got a little confusing because he was jumping around a lot. And I still think the artwork is really great. But I just really like how Dennis Hopeless write dialogue. Just lines in there that just make me chuckle and laugh that I find very endearing and entertaining.
entertaining, even if they're kind of just simple. You know, I don't like X-Men, so I'm not a huge fan of Jean Grey, so I thought any addition of somebody else was good. <laughs> Nothing. My favorite part was she's trying to sober his ass up, and she's like, coffee, all the coffee. Yeah, see, it's things like that that I like. I will give it two and a half, a big freaking magical hammer. Probably my favorite of this run, which isn't saying much. So I'm going to give it two and a half. I speak drunken stories. I will give it three. You're Odin's and now Thor's <laughs> a lady. I like that. That was a good line. I'm going to give it four. All the coffee. Alrighty. So it's me now. Now for something completely different. Cal Exit, number one, Image Comics. If you want to scream with me, scream with me. Written by Matteo Pizzolo. Pencils and inks by... Amanke, oh man, Nalupan, <laughs> colors by Tyler Boss. I've been waiting for something to come about that is there is no denying that is attached to the political atmosphere of our country. There's no denying. There's no denying. There's been hints. We've definitely seen correlations where we've kind of pulled like, oh, the Red Skull's kind of pulling a... Yeah. When there is a large amount of turmoil in our country, I like when I see it come out in the arts. And I've been waiting for something, so that's why I wanted to give this a try. It starts off, there's this really good map, and it has what cities have been taken over, which ones are part of an alliance. It's really interesting though I have to say as a Northern California person I'm a little bit miffed that we look like suckers that already have gotten taken over <laughs> but that's just me <laughs> it makes SoCal look tough and us look like wusses I wasn't digging that part there's a shit ton of rednecks with guns out here <laughs> I know right I don't think whoever knows this is understanding about Sonoma County and about <laughs> Petaluma in fact no so it starts with saying there's a re-election of the president. It doesn't say who the president is, but by the drawing, it is clear. Well, and the way that he speaks, he's like, I'm going to give you some bigly news. And So this comic is very wordy. There's a lot of text. Jesus fucking Christ, is it? There was way too many words. Oh my God. Which you know I, I complain about often in comics. That it's too much. And it's so fucking long. Oh my god. It's way too long. Yeah. It's a triple fucking issue. So there is a thing where they are interrogating some parents who had an adoptive daughter who's on the run who's obviously against the government and everything like that. And they come in there and this the wet works man and he pulls out a butcher knife. He's questioning it and then it just goes to black. Oh, you mean yeah. Steve Jobs? Let's call it what it is. It's right. Steve fucking Jobs. First it's a black panel just one bubble with a text and then it's just black. And so they have really good pacing panels like that. You know, if you've listened to our podcast before, we are a fan of the black panel usage. I'm a fan of nothing in this book, but... <laughs> I'm talking about panels, not necessarily the book. There are some really dark aspects of some really brutal things that happen in this. There's a guy named Eddie the Pimp or Chimp, who is definitely Bannon. <laughs> oh, dear God, that is just fucking Bannon. It is. It looks like them. There are parts that I found interesting in a way. They're doing like where Ryan has said before, where it's better to build the world and not necessarily explain it right away and let it unfold how the government is. They try to fit too much into explaining what's there's going on. just too much going on. Too much to explain, because like I said, there's way too much. I like that there's something coming about all the current modern turmoil. I like to see that it's coming into stories and this type of medium. I don't think this was necessarily handled the best. So, you guys have at it. This is is fucking garbage. Preach, brother, preach. I'm sorry, but this is the biggest piece of shit I have read in a long so fucking long. time. First of all, let's talk about the length of this. It is 52 fucking pages, and it is 52 
pages of fucking garbage. Of uninteresting bullshit. Yes. I get what they were wanting to do, but I think where they failed is that the fact that they had nothing interesting to say. There's no keen observations. There's no plays off of modern day politics. They're like, Nazi Trump takes over the world. It's four years later, technically. First of all, where did those fucking Mulholland Falls fucks? Where did they get their guns at? Because <laughs> you know they got none. No, there's no way. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, just a bunch of ARs laying around in the rich people's neighborhoods. I don't fucking think so. The villain looks like Steve fucking Jobs, which irritated the fuck out. That was weird. Everyone is obviously somebody. He should have looked more like fucking Pence or something like that. Oh my god. I feel like they meant well, but it just doesn't fit together. I think there was too much going on. This suffers from serious, serious pacing issues character development, confusing yeah. dialogue, uh-huh. over-stylized panels, mm-hmm. way, way too fucking long, confusing maps uh-huh. that are supposed to give you information but just end up uh-huh. confusing you more. There was so much stuff they could have cut out in this that didn't need to happen at all. It was a little too ambitious. I think they took on too much. I definitely think there's parts that I could see where it could have gone well, but it's just getting all muddied. I wouldn't necessarily go like, oh my god, it's a piece of shit out here. Or like, no, you failed on points. The drawings aren't horrible. They're just busy because there's so much text in them. It's all right. The art's all right. But they do an inconsistent style where sometimes you'll just have people's heads floating in panels, and other times the art is more realistic. And then you'll also have these almost like anime reactions action shots where there's the person doing the big eyes like oh while like all these lines go around them yeah that was a little unnerving there was like a whole middle section of this that could have been cut out this should have just been a graphic novel at that point it was so long i don't even feel like they had a real solid idea of what they wanted to do it was just simple nazi trump takes over america and that's it the political commentary is not sharp it's extremely partisan which reduces the effectiveness of your argument i was wondering if it's too rushed if they wanted to be the first to get out or they're just so passionate and enraged that i must do something and then got distracted by it well if your do something is put out a shitty comic book they succeeded yeah you guys know me i'm not like some ultra conservative by any means but this felt like a super ultra liberal circle jerk and it had no point to it because they don't have any insight into what's going on or why people are supporting one side or the other for example in secret empire you understand what everyone is doing and why they're doing it you may not agree with their motivations and for god sakes i hope you don't agree with their motivations but they're clearly defined their goals and what they want here (laughs) other than trump is stupid and bad and anyone who follows him is there's no insight into we don't understand who the hell that girl is yeah she's got a fucking robot leg that no one even fucking mentions i'm like how the hell you have a seven-headed robot leg (laughs) and they're just like "Eh, whatever i really wanted it to be better thank you I did too. I could see this being a basis of, of a movie if they stripped a lot of it out. Normally I'd be pissed off when someone buys the rights to something and just uses the name, but that's probably the best use for this series. Keep the robot leg. All right, I'll give you the <laughs> robot leg. That was pretty cool. It's only four years from now. <laughs> I'm going to give it one and a half kids with guns. I had high hopes. It just wasn't handled well. I'm not even going to give it that. I'm going to give <laughs> this piece of shit one single unexplained robot leg. <laughs> I will give this one and a half because all the panels face the same way and they're basically in sequence. So it's not a complete failure. It's not She-Wolf and it's not Pencilhead. Those are my one-star books. This is one and a half. 
So I'm going to give it one and a half ovaries are bigger than testicles. It could be done so much better. Parts of this that make me want to like it, but I just can't. I'm just going to give it like one and a quarter Wonder Woman hookers. I don't... <laughs> so, Edge of the Metaverse, issue number two, Marvel Comics, written by Christopher Hastings, pencils and inks by Irene Skirk... Fucking Ryan. Skarkalski. I didn't name them. Blame their mama. <laughs> No, you made me have this book. <laughs> Colors by Java Tartaglia. Don't like Venom. I don't like Gwenpool. Oh, this is so bad. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. I liked uh... it. When I first started reading it, I hated it. When it got to the Matt Murdock crushing, I was like, okay, I'm sold. <laughs> That was fine. I actually like the Venom head. I thought the Venom head was kind of funny. The actual symbiote head, but I just, I don't like it. I don't know who likes this stuff. I do. Ryan, why? Okay, yeah. why? Explain it. All right, here's why I <laughs> like it. So Edge of the Venomverse, it's all alternate takes on Venom's origin, that he bonds with like a different superhero rather than Spider-Man in each one of these. And they even talk about that, that they're in an alternate like what if comic in here. I thought the thing with the ninjas, the inverse laws of ninjas, was pretty funny. That if you're one ninja, you're a total badass. But if you're a bunch of ninjas, you're just cannon fodder. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty funny. Oh, I didn't get that far. <laughs> That's like three pages in, Rory. I didn't get very far. I know, it was hard to get through this. I like this, but this is what I'm saying. The first few pages, I was like, oh my god, I'm so annoyed. This is irritating. But once I got a little further in, I'm like, okay, this is really cute. <laughs> I don't like even that it's cute. That's the problem. I was cute. like, I didn't even like that it was cute. Yeah, I'm sorry, but the anime kawaii bullshit, I just can't deal with. I normally don't like that stuff either, but it worked for this. The anime eyes were killing me. The little crush with Matt Murdock, that was pretty funny. That was the best part she was- Where she's doodling Gwen plus Matt, like little hearts. That was kind of cute. Yeah, like when you're a little kid and you're like, right, this is Matt Murdock. Her boss gets the notes that explain that Matt Murdock is Daredevil, so then Venom is trying to convince her to kill him because he's a dick, and Venom wants to kill and eat everything. And then they show up and battle a bunch of ninjas. And this Daredevil was kind of just funny. And it just reminded me of that weird alternate reality with Rocket where they're like, want to fight ninjas sign? Yeah, I thought it was funny. It depends, I think, how much you like Deadpool and if you absolutely hate Venom. Yeah, I hate Venom. I like Deadpool. I don't like Gwenpool. I can't stand a Gwenpool by herself comic usually. That's a little too zany for me too, yeah. When she was in the Rocket and Groot comic and the whole like, what's a Bendis thing, that was great. That was this funny. is cute. I mean, I don't like just Venom comics on their own usually either. The way they've been kind of playing him as the weird devil on your shoulder kind of, you know, with Gwenpool. For some reason it's kind of worked for me. It's a Gwenpool comic. The plot is not very complex, so there's not much point in going into it. There is no there plot. There is a plot. There is no plot. <laughs> no. So, Christina, what'd you give this? <laughs> Damn. Like two raspberries. <laughs> I gave it three and a quarter crushing on Daredevil. I gave it one and a quarter they should have just left her dead in the beginning that was the best part <laughs> yeah fucking awful well, i really like this i will give it four i just handed my boss a sheet of paper that says matt murdoch is daredevil i thought it worked me too i mean ryan usually don't agree so that's yeah weird. okay more mark we've got weapon x number five marvel comics written by greg pack pencils and ink by mark borstel colors by frank diarmato I think it's the easy names. <laughs> For once. <laughs> <laughs>
In this one, it starts off following this family and this lady. Her daughter freaks out because there's a rat in like a rat trap. She's kind of like looking at it and going, ah. But her husband is kind of like, oh, I didn't think you'd the jump on chairs type. And she goes, I'm not. But then we find out why shortly because she goes to work and she's standing in line and <laughs> she's at the facility and she comes in and she's like one of the like the lower level scientists at the facility. And so they've got a bunch of Wolverine rats that are attacking this mutant and ripping it up, which kind of reveals why she was freaking out about it so bad. So then we flash back to our heroes slash anti-heroes slash villains of the story, Cho and Logan, formerly known as Wolverine, and Sabretooth and Lady Deathstrike are looking for this kid, and he's like their next convert. And so they're all trying to track him down and figure out where he's at so they can keep him from becoming the next Hulkarine. And so Domino and Warpath are headed to this place, like one of their facilities and stuff. So they basically go like kick ass on a bunch of those freaking the T2 Weapon X skeletons. And then Wolverine and Sabretooth are going and they're talking to one of the accountants of the facility and they're trying to find out info. And then that's where we find out that the Weapon X headquarters, they have deployed these nanites into people and the scientist that we were talking about earlier she's like oh we never deployed those and then this other guy's like we did actually and so they use that to execute this guy before he could give Wolverine and Sabretooth any information and then then they're like oh we've got to nuke that whole group so you know we've got 24 more subjects to kill this scientist they did some really good shots of her face where it's clearly having a visible effect on her doing all this crazy shit killing off people killing off mutants killing off her fellow scientists and stuff which is kind of like an angle that I don't think I've seen too many comic books actually look at. The background minions that are doing the work and what these crazy fucking experiments do to them. What goes on is that later on that lady say, hey, you've gotten a promotion down to bad age. And so they grab her and taser. Turns out that she's going to be the next Hulkarine. It was kind of an interesting shot where they showed her at the very end where she's laying on the ground paralyzed as they're saying, prep the tank and get her in there. And then she's like thinking about the rat on the sticky paper shitting itself that was good yeah i thought it was a pretty good issue it was okay the mouse thing was interesting i thought i need to see where it worked but other than that i was like okay it's just continuing the story i didn't really think it was a standout issue where there's been a couple of them that have been really interesting this one was just moving it along i didn't feel like there was any really huge big reveal i thought it was interesting the day in the life of the scientist i thought that was entertaining yeah, she's level orange. We're going to show those level reds. <laughs> yeah, they're like the bottom of the barrel scientists. <laughs> I enjoyed that part. I didn't really care for any of the middle right, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so are we rating it? I liked it. I thought it was an interesting take from the eyes of the minions. So I'm going to give it three and a half. Folks have noticed what you do around here. I gave it three and a quarter. I'll do whatever it takes. I will give it three and a third Wolverine Terminators. So those are the books we read this week. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcasts on original streaming media, Cut the Cord at fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music on SoundCloud on Stitcher and on Podcast Addict be sure to rate review and subscribe and be sure to come back next week for another episode (laughs) keep reading nerds